0: Attention, people of Earth, do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to the premiere episode of the Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast. My name is Luke Giaconetti, also known as El Giacone. You might know me from such podcasts as The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror over on the Two True Freaks Network, which I co-host along with Chris Honeywell and the Hair Metal Hero. I also run a couple of different combo squads, El Giacone's Bunker and aljaconefunker.blogspot.com, which is a general comic book blog. I also run Seeing Carter Hall, a Hawkman blog at beingcarterhall.blogspot.com. Well, I guess the first question is, Luke, why are you making a Daikaiju podcast? And the answer to that is pretty simple. Uh, My entire life, Godzilla has been the biggest fandom I've had of anything, whether it was comics or science fiction or fantasy or western or horror or anything. Uh, Godzilla and his ilk of kaiju from Japan has always been tops with me. Uh, This all dates back to when I was a very young kid. My dad had a tape with uh, four Godzilla movies on it, or four Toho kaiju movies, I should say, which was the original Godzilla King of the Monsters, then Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, then Rodan, and then Monster Zero. And I watched and rewatched and rewatched those four movies over and over and over, and you know they just shaped my uh, my opinion about kaiju and my love for for giant monsters. And uh, it just grew from there. You know, uh, as I got older, I sought out all of the commercially available tapes and bought tapes for ones that weren't commercially available at uh, shows and conventions. Then the effort lately has been to. Uh, Get everything on dvd (laughs) Uh, amazing what they'll do to get us to rebuy the same movies we've already purchased right and then you know branching out buying all the gamma dvds all the lesser known kaiju from uh, japan you know other asian uh, monsters all that kind of stuff and uh, you know it it came to the point where i was thinking about uh something that uh, chris honeywell along with his partner scott gardner said they did a podcast right before Scott um, had to go on hiatus for a little while, and it was basically, go out and make your damn podcast. And, you know, I thought to myself, I've got the equipment to do this. I've got my MP3 player that I'm recording into right now, and I've got, you know, access to Audacity, and I've got access to CDs to score them if I want to or whatever, and Lord knows I've got the knowledge of Daikaiju, and I've got the uh, materials to do research with. So I said, why the hell not? You know, I, I hadn't found a, uh, a Dai kaiju podcast, um, personally. So I said, I'm going to try and fill that niche. And if, uh, you know, if other people enjoy it, great. If not, hey, I'm still having fun, right? So um, that's pretty much the background. I think we're going to get into just some general kaiju discussion before, uh, you know, moving on to more specific topics in future endeavors. So... I'm going to take a little break right now. We'll be right back, talk a little bit more giant monsters here on the Earth Destruction Directive. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. All right, we are back on the Earth Destruction Directive, Episode 1. No, it is not subtitled The Phantom Menace, and I think that joke is about 10 years past its expiration date, but that's neither here nor there. Before we get started, I wanted to give a little note about pronunciation. And this is important when talking about Japanese giant monsters, again, because it's Japanese. And obviously, as you can tell, I speak English. I do not speak Japanese. And part of this is exacerbated by the fact that a lot of these monsters have had different names or different pronunciations of the same name over the years. I tend to use the more traditional... Uh, Names, more traditional pronunciations. Uh, A good example is the monster King Ghidorah. I say King Ghidorah because that was the way his name was pronounced for a long, long time. You watch Monster Zero, Nick Adams says King Ghidorah when they're on Planet X. Toho would like um, us English-speaking audiences to say King Ghidorah. And I really, really dislike that. I think that sounds just silly. I think it sounds uh, clownish for the King of Terror to be called Ghidorah. It sounds like somebody's trying to overpronounce it, and I, I don't like it. But, you know, in the same token, the monster Gigan, you'll notice how I pronounce that. In the United States, he's generally known as Gigan. And I like the Japanese pronunciation of Gigan. I like the more clipped sound. It sounds a little more alien, and I think it suits the character better. Um, but to give another example, if you've got a monster that has had several names over the years, uh, Kamakuras comes to mind. He was known in the U.S. for a long time as jamantas and I will always call him Kamakuras, because that is, you know, the name, that's his correct name. And Jamantis was only the name he had when Son of Godzilla was dubbed um, and put on television. Same with uh Kamakuras' uh, buddy in Son of Godzilla, who was known as Spigus in this country for a long time. And now again, Toa would like you to call him Kuamunga. So... If you have any questions about pronunciation, don't like the way I say something, you know, uh, think another pronunciation would make more sense, then please go ahead and write in. I'll give the address and everything in the close of the show, and we can talk about it also in regarding the pronunciation. I'll do my best with the Japanese names of the creative staff that worked on all of these films, but I, again, am not Japanese, so if I mess somebody up, please don't send me any angry emails. Just uh, let me know what I did wrong, all right? Okay, I think for the first episode, we're just going to get into a general discussion of daikaiju. And when I say kaiju, a lot of people don't use that term as much as more general kaiju, which is kind of a romanization of uh, the Japanese word for monster or beast. And dai is simply a prefix, which means great. So if you say daikaiju, you're referring to a giant monster, as opposed to a human-sized monster. You know, On um, a Super Sentai show, for instance, your monsters start out as just regular human-sized kaiju, and then generally grow giant into a daikaiju. Uh, in the genre that was launched by Gojra in 1954, this is daikaiju. There are no human-sized monsters in, uh, uh, in the kaiju iga that we're going to be talking about primarily on this show. Toho did produce some uh, human-sized monsters. Those are generally referred to as the mutant films, and those include films such as The H-Man, Human Vapor, things of that nature. Daikai, like I said, began in 1954 with the release of Gojira by Toho Studios out of Japan. And Toho was, they were around before the war, they did a lot of period pieces, you know, they did that sort of stuff, which was very commonplace uh, before World War II in Japanese cinema. But after the war, with the large presence of Americans that were stationed there, uh, Japanese cinema began to kind of morph a little bit more to resemble its western counterparts. There was a lot of you know, costume period uh, pieces, there was a lot of romances, a lot of action movies. Samurai movies were very popular in this time frame, and Toho produced more than their fair share of them. But, you know, Japanese cinema really just took off of a boon just because it was this new audience that wanted, uh, you know, desired film. And, you know, it was this general idea of moving forward after the war and, and getting yourself into the modern times. And Gojoro was part of that movement. Uh, it was directed by Ishiro Honda, who also was one of the writers. Uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka was the producer, and he was the producer for the Godzilla series for a long, long time, for decades after this, with the effects done by uh, effects legend Eji Subura, who would go on to create Ultraman and various other special effects uh, characters from Japan. Um, the film, of course, as most people know, is a uh, allegory about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki during World War II, and the perils of the atom bomb and of the use of atomic power. And it was shot in a very very dark, very somber sort of film noir take. It's in black and white. It's not a very upbeat movie. It's very different from the other ones, as anyone who's seen it can attest to. And the film was a huge success in Japan. The the anti-war allegory was... Uh, very strong uh it it played to a lot of willing audiences. I mean, you got to remember we're less than a decade removed from the end of World War two so you know it's very fresh in people's minds, especially uh those who you know knew uh victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki so the perils of the atom bomb were you know very much a day to day reality for Japan at this point and you know, so it wasn't a big su- surprise that the film became very popular to the point that Toho rushed a sequel into production the next year, which was called Godzilla's Counterattack or its international title eventually became known as Godzilla Raids Again. And you know it's obviously a kind of a rush job uh, sequel. I like to refer to it as the Son of Kong to uh, <laughs> to Godzilla because it's the effects are are nice, you know, but it's not really the same sort of powerful story. It's kind of just a, a you know a giant monster movie. But the real uh, testament to Godzilla was that in 1956, an outfit in the United States named Jewel Enterprises uh, picked up the film and they did a re-editing job where uh, scenes were exercised and re- rearranged and new pickup footage was shot with uh, Raymond Burr, of course. And stand-ins for the Japanese actors in order to provide a sort of Greek chorus or a narrator for the film to help American audiences follow along. And it was done very respectfully. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of good jokes out there about Raymond Burr and Godzilla. I know they did a great bit with that on Pinky and the Brain back in the day. But if you watch the Godzilla King of the Monsters from 1956, it's it's handled very respectfully, and it's certainly not a bad edit at all. And it's it's treat it treats the subject matter with um, Dignity and and doesn't, you know, lose the gravitas of the original. Uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters was released by both Transworld and Embassy Pictures, uh, depending on what coast you lived on in the United States, and was a big, big hit. Um, It was, you know, very surprisingly a big hit, especially with the the younger set, who was already at that point big on giant monsters in the wake of, you know, them, and the Beast and Twenty Thousand Fathoms, and you know things of that nature. Those early um, adam Age horror American giant monster movies, which would also make a great podcast, but is a little outside of our range for what we're talking about here. So with the success of Godzilla King of the Monsters in the U.S., you know, it it prompted Toho to you know think about making films that they could also release over here, as opposed to just in Japan. So. Godzilla Raids Again was then uh, was sold and repackaged into a film called Gigantus the Fire Monster. The legend of that, of course, is that the producer, whose name I don't have in my notes, wanted audiences to think they were getting a new monster and not just seeing Godzilla again. And in retrospect, that wasn't such a great idea. But, uh, of course, Gigantus the Fire Monster was a debut of uh, everybody's favorite spiny ankylosaurus uh, analog, Anguirus, and... You know, he would go on to be a you know a fan favorite for a long, long time. He still is a fan favorite to this day, despite not having too many appearances under his belt and uh, getting his butt kicked very, fairly soundly most times he does show up. But from Godzilla raids again, which was in black and white, Toho then took some of the money that they were making from these international sales and was able to start shooting in color, and that led to Rodan in 1956 and the Mysterians, which introduced the giant mole robot Mogra in 1957. Both of these were large budget, shot in uh, you know, widescreen color, and both of these were dubbed and released over in the United States. And they weren't cut down like Godzilla King of the Monsters was. They were treated very straight and you know just given a dub job and released. And both were mildly successful. Rodin especially. Rodin's a very good film, so that helps it. Uh, the Mysterians is more of an alien invasion type film than a uh, giant monster on the loose. The Mogara only figures into one scene, really, and then another one pops up at the end. But it was, it was still, you know, it was well-received. In 1958, Toho began work with uh, a joint co-production with ABC Television to produce a film directly for ABC that they would air on television. It was called Verand or Baron again, if you like the Japanese one, that V confusion. Uh, the problem is ABC pulled out partway through the film, and so Varon was left mostly shot in black and white. And so Toho, you know, Toho you will find as this podcast goes on, never lets anything go to waste. If they have it, they will use it. So they took what footage they have shot of Varon and finished it up and released it as kind of a, a, a cheapy in um, in Japan, and it was, it was weird because they jumped back to black and white for it because it had been produced for television. From there, um, we go to Mothra in 1961, which was back to color, back to widescreen, all, and again, released in theaters in the United States and, and pretty popular. Uh, Mothra is one of the uh, – a lot of people forget about the original Mothra, and they, they think more about Mothra's later appearances, but you know the original Mothra is an underrated little movie, and it recently just got released on DVD um, on a three-pack by Columbia, Along with a couple other uh, Toho films that they uh, they were distributed back in the day, and uh, again another popular film, and at this point, you know Toho had a a series of pretty much a series of hits on their hand. You know between uh, Rodan and Mysterians, Mothra. There was a couple of non kaiju films in there as well. The Battle in Outer Space was a big big special effects epic. Uh, We'd call that a popcorn movie nowadays, except it's all models instead of CGI. And so they really were going to push and, and make a, a big budget success, and that came in 1962 with King Kong versus Godzilla. And this was a major, major hit in Japan. Um, to this day, King Kong vs. Godzilla has sold more tickets than any other Godzilla film in Japan. The the American Godzilla film, Godzilla 98, did sell more tickets in the U.S., but in Japan, King Kong vs. Godzilla still reigns supreme, no matter you know, no matter what they came up with later, nothing would top that. It was the ultimate spectacle of giant monsters fighting. And um you know, it's and, and it the funny thing about King Kong vs Godzilla is that it demonstrates two very interesting points. One is that, you know, oftentimes, especially nowadays in this country with the predominance of manga and anime, you know Americans are accused of being you know Asiaphiles you know of loving anything that comes from Japan just because it comes from Japan. well, this goes both ways in Japan. they love King Kong Willis O'Brien's original King Kong was uh, you know massively popular over there after it got released there after the war, and the character of King Kong, this heroic you know uh, giant monster ape, was. Not a character that was it was a you know not a character that came from Japan, but he was so popular, so popular over there. So to see King Kong take on Godzilla was just an amazing uh, you know uh, coup, let's just say, for Toho because it was just you know everyone wanted to see that, and they wanted to see Kong come out on top, which leads me to my second point, despite what you may have uh, read in you know various magazines and on the internet over the years, there are not two endings to King Kong versus Godzilla. I feel the need to reiterate this. Just because I've, you know, I still have to explain this to people sometimes that Kong wins the fight. Okay, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The only difference between the two films is, uh, as far as the very end of it, is that in the Japanese film, after they disappear under the water and Kong is swimming off, uh, Kong, you hear Kong's roar and you hear Godzilla's roar, and because Godzilla roared second. Some people have taken that to believe that it means that Goji won. Uh, What this actually was intended to be was kind of a bow, you know, that it was the show's over, we're going to take a bow on stage, and the monsters were giving their bow to the audience. Uh, These roars were omitted in the um, American version. And the American version is something I want to talk a little bit about here, because after several years of very well-done localizations for Toho's films, Um, Universal kind of went a little overboard with King Kong vs. Godzilla. A lot of character development, a lot of exposition was excised from the film and replaced with really, let's just call a spade a spade, really crummy insert footage uh, involving a UN reporter and a supposed a primatologist who has a children's book of dinosaurs to explain to us, you know, that Godzilla has a pea-sized brain. And all of uh, Akira Ifukube's music was removed and replaced with stock universal music, which is is funny because if you watch it, it's like, hey, it's the music from Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know. But uh, really, as a kid, that's amusing, but, you know, as as an older viewer, it's kind of irritating, you know. Um, But those changes notwithstanding – King Kong vs. Godzilla in the U.S. was also a big hit. And it, like I said, it made a lot of money for Toho. And it kind of, you know, not, not so much emboldened, but it pushed the ball forward and started what is generally referred to as the golden age of giant monsters. You know, the, the early, 60s, early to mid-60s just was a, a boom of giant monster movies. And the next film in the series also introduced a concept which would also revolutionize the, the uh, Godzilla series, and that was that it was a series, and that it wasn't just a series of movies being produced, but that they were connected, because the next film produced was Mothra vs. Godzilla, known in this country as Godzilla vs. The Thing. And this was the first time that Toho took one of their monsters that had appeared previously, Mothra, and paired him up with Godzilla. And of course, this would, trend would continue with uh, Rodan and Varon and you know, down the line, these monsters would all appear, and it would all be one big happy monster mash. Um, Motha versus Godzilla was um, again a complete 180 from King Kong vs. Godzilla. Not only was it released without any insert footage in the U.S., but Toho actually shot a sequence of the United States Navy leading an attack on Godzilla specifically for the U.S. market. So if you watch your DVD of Godzilla vs. The Thing, you'll get the sequence with the U.S. Navy that the Japanese viewer won't get. And, uh, you know, the, the fanboy speculates that – the fanboy and me speculates that this was done to prevent the hatchet job, but apparently this was done at the request of uh, – at the request of the U.S. distributors who wanted, you know, to show some American – uh, military in there to make it you know add a little local flavor, and uh, again it's very well done little little scene. One of the first of many naval attacks on uh, the King of Monsters that kind of falls falls a little bit short of what the military commanders were hoping to achieve with it. Let's just say. Following this in 1964, we got uh, actually released the same year at least right a, a couple of months after was Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, and this film is very important in that. It establishes Godzilla for the first time as a hero and not as a villain. Godzilla was always the heavy in his first four films. You know, um, obviously in the original he's pretty much an engine of destruction. In the second one he's the worst of two brutish, thuggish monsters. You know, they, they I think, Anguirus is referred to at one point as uh, the plunderer of the world, and you know, Godzilla's worse than he is. King Kong versus Godzilla, Kong is obviously the protagonist. You know, uh, the fact that his costume is designed so that we can see the actors' eyes, um, is a clear indication of that for Kong. And and then in King Kong and excuse me, Mothra vs Godzilla, again, Mothra's always played the hero in every film that Mothra's ever appeared in and this doesn't change in, in that instance. But in Ghidorah, um, uh, Godzilla and Rodan both take on a heroic role at the end of the film to fight the space monster Ghidorah along with uh, Mothra. And this this change would drastically change the direction of the, not only of the Godzilla series, but of Daikaiju film in general. Because now they were aware that their films were playing a lot to a young audience and that the young audience wanted the monster hero, you know. And so it was an important it was an important tool to to use that monster hero to give him more heroic traits more humanized traits and just keep running with that in order to keep the films going. King, uh, Ghidorah the three monster of course also introduced King Ghidorah, who uh, is pretty much ex- uh, accepted to be Godzilla's main rival and a very well known monster in his own right. Um, he would go on of course to appear several times more in this series and enter into pop culture in general. I think any time you see a reference to uh, Godzilla in a, uh, you know, an anime or a reference to him on a television show or something, there's almost it's like a 50-50 shot that you're either going to get Rodan or King Ghidorah with him. Uh, that's the idea of that the three-headed dragon is uh, just too well-known and too uh, well-ingrained in too many people's heads not to be included. The thing about the golden age of the uh, giant monster film is that, like I said, it not only impacted Godzilla, but also other studios who wanted to get in on it. The primary one was uh, one of their competitors, Dai, uh motion picture company, who in 1965 released Gamera. Now, Gamera was shot in black and white. Dai was not as large a studio as Toho, and in fact never quite achieved the same level of success that Toho did, either in Tokusatsu, or uh, which is... Live-action special effects types of uh, movies, or in any other endeavor, period pieces, you know, straight film, whatever. Dai was—they uh, were kind of a, a bit player for a long time, but they—they they had their—they had their moments. Well, so Gamera was a very typical monster on the loose sort of movie, um, featuring Gamera the giant turtle. This is before he was the friend of children everywhere. Uh, he is awoken by a atomic blast in the Arctic and goes on a rampage, and at the end is. Spoilers, shot into space in a rocket. Uh, This was primarily done so that if they brought him back, they wouldn't have to resurrect him like Toho did. And Gamera would come back um, a couple of years later with um, Gamera vs. Barugan, which was shot in color. And uh, then he would have his own series of films following after that all, which were in color and primarily uh, very juvenile. But they're, they're fun, and the monsters in there are fun too. Some other films from this era that showed up was The X from Outer Space from 1967, which featured the very strange-looking uh, kaiju Giyala. Um This is a very little-known film, but it, it, they just made a sequel a couple of years ago, kind of a tongue-in-cheek sequel, and the film is getting a little bit more recognition. We also had Gappa, the Trifibian Monster, from I think it was Nikitsu who released this in 1967. This one is more well-known just because it's in the public domain, and if you buy a cheap uh, giant monster DVD set, you will probably get a copy of Gappa. Um, Gappa apparently in Japan was something of a comedy, but in the U.S. the dub is played straight. Uh, not a great film, but certainly fun, and we'll talk more about Gappa at some point in the future. Um, I remember my my father had a book of... You know, history of monsters type book, and there was the Gappa poster uh, in there that was used. It was used as an illustration of that even by 1967, King Kong was still the film that everybody compared themselves to, and it said Gappa, even mightier than King Kong, and like, oh my God, I've got to see this. but so needless to say, when I finally did see it, it was a little disappointing, but still a, a fun little movie. And uh, going across the uh, outside Japan for a moment. In 1967, the Korean film *Yongari* was released, and *Yongari* was uh, kind of a Korean attempt to make Godzilla. He was, you know, a uh, uh, mutated dinosaur, breathed fire. Um, you know, *Yongari* never really, uh, never really got much play. He would get resurrected um, in the 20, the end of the 20th century for a new version of *Yongari*. And *Yongari* is, is you know, generally seen as Korea's national monster. Um, you know, for good or ill, um, you know, it, it, it just showed that the, 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 the breadth of the genre at this point, it was really uh, being made available to everyone, and everyone wanted it in the action because there was money to be made, you know, so from there, the Gamma films continued on, the Godzilla films, of course, continued on straight through the 60s, straight through the 70s, uh, until we get to Terror of Mac Godzilla in 1975. And due to you know various factors, mostly the declining box office and the general depression of uh, the Japanese film industry in the 70s, uh, Godzilla went on hiatus and Godzilla went away for you know a decade almost. And during this period, there was all sorts of projects announced: Godzilla versus the Devil, Godzilla versus. Gargantua. There was all sorts of these different ones that were announced with these astronomical budgets for the seventies, and nothing ever came of them. And a lot of it was mostly for Toho to drum up interest in other projects. Is is my take on it. Um, Then we got into the eighties and the beginning of what is generally referred to as the Hessei period. Uh, This, you know, was the modern. You know, I put that in air quotes. Let me hold that up to the mic so you can see it. It was a modern take, and it was a modern Japan. And in 1984, Toho released um, their largest budgeted Godzilla film to date at that point, which was *The Return of Godzilla*. Um, and this was a this was a, a step back to the original. It was treating Godzilla with the sort of uh, power and um, you know the the destructive capability that the original had. And it was a return to that sort of film, the idea of of it being almost a horror film with the idea of a a monster being on the loose and and the destruction and and terror that he would cause. It was also something of a special effects uh, revolution as well, because while it still used uh, the suitmation techniques, they also used some really advanced uh, cable-driven puppets. Uh, If you watch uh, Godzilla 1984 or the American version, Godzilla 1985, which I'll get to in a minute, uh, there's a lot of great close-ups of, of Godzilla roaring, where you can see his lips quivering, his tongue moving. You know, very animalistic, very realistic. They also used a 25-foot-tall cybot, which was kind of a, um, you know, it was a, it was a little robot guy that was used for some scenes. That was, it's not that convincing, but it was a good attempt. They were trying to do something new. And uh, they also used a full-scale version of Godzilla's foot, which is awesome. And unfortunately, most of it got cut out of the, Amer- the uh, American release of it. I love it anytime you got a full-scale foot. It makes me think of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Just you know, <sighs> um, Return of Godzilla was very, very successful in Japan, and Toho, you know, shopped it around to the U.S. and it was picked up by New World Pictures. And in a very interesting move, what New World did was, in an attempt to tie the new Godzilla back to the original much like the Japanese one had done, because The Return of Godzilla uh, threw out all of the continuity and all the uh, events from every film from Godzilla Raids Again through Terror of Mechagodzilla. Just got rid of them and said, okay, this is a new Godzilla. There was a Godzilla that attacked Japan in 1954, and we've had nothing as far as giant monster attacks between then and now. So this was a complete refresh. And the American one took a similar approach, except that it's posited that this was the same Godzilla from, uh, that we saw in 1956 in American's case, um, which doesn't make a lot of sense because um, you know, we saw the oxygen destroyer kill him. But to that end, New World uh, hired Raymond Burr and once again shot, uh, insert shots and deleted a good 15, 20 minutes of footage and you know, cut him in as you know, reporter Steve Martin to serve once again as the Greek chorus for the American version of the film. Uh, Unfortunately, this this was handled kind of tongue-in-cheek. Burr plays opposite a couple of goofballs in the Pentagon uh, with some really over-the-top aggressive ads for Dr. Pepper because Dr. Pepper did a tie-in with this film. And he he doesn't have much to do, and it really comes off as kind of corny. Um, Furthermore, there's some edits made to uh, the American cut of this film which are a little suspect. There's a scene where a... Soviet, excuse me, submarine commander is uh, desperately trying to prevent a nuclear missile from being launched, and in the American cut, it's edited so that he is desperately trying to launch it because we, you know, this was 1985. We can't have the Soviets look uh, like anything other than rat bastards in an American film. Also interesting is that um, it's not just character development or. you know, exposition scenes that are cut. Effects shots were cut. Some some really nice special effects shots were cut in the American version. So I'm not really sure why that was done, but, um, you know, we'll talk more about uh, Return of Godzilla in a, in a later episode. Uh, but the success of Return of Godzilla prompted Toho to restart the Godzilla series, and five years later we got Godzilla vs. Biollante, uh, featuring the debut of the, the first plant-based monster of the uh, Daikaiju uh, genre. And from there, we've got all of our Hesai films, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra, Godzilla vs. Met Godzilla, and so on and so forth, until um, uh, which ran until 1995 with Godzilla vs. Destroyer. Uh, at the same time, right in the early 90s, the Gamera films were restarted, uh, directed by Shusuke Kaneko. Kaneko? Kaneko? I don't know how to pronounce his name. See? I told you. Uh, and these were... Uh, vastly different from the original Gamera films. Gone were the, the kiddie aspects, the juvenile kind of hijinks, and in its place we got a very solid mystical story about Gamera, the guardian of the universe, who was created by the ancient uh, humans to battle the Gauss and the coming darkness. And, uh, these three films, which are Gamora: Guardian of the Universe, uh, Gamera, Advent of Legion, and Gamera, Awakening of Eris, also known by the title I much prefer... Gamera incomplete struggle. Uh, they form a very tight little trilogy of Daikaiju movies, and they were very widely praised both uh, you know, in the East and in the West, as well they should be. They're they're all very good films, and we will talk about them in a later episode. I know I keep saying that, but I don't want people to think I'm just kind of glossing over these. I intend to talk about just about any Kaiju movie I can, and the Gamera, the modern Gamera films were just tremendous, tremendous films. Uh, especially in the wake of Yamara's return to public awareness via Mystery Science Theater 3000 in the 90s, which, um, you know, Sandy Frank hadn't had, had uh, a real reason to be ticked off at those guys, but uh, you can't say it didn't help make people remember the friend of children everywhere. Um, the Hesai era, as I said, ended in 1995, and this was a precursor to the American Godzilla film, Um, released by Tristar in 1998, featuring, um, you know, whatever you want to call them, the Amerigoji Geno, meaning Godzilla in name only, or Zilla, or, you know, whatever. And this film was predicted to be a huge hit. And it made a lot of money, but it was not the hit that either Tristar nor Toho really wanted. So um, any plans for sequels to uh, Godzilla 98 were scrapped. And Toho took the character back, and in 1999 released Godzilla Millennium, uh, beginning the um, Millennium series, or the Shinrei series, I already called those. And this was released over here as Godzilla 2000, and it was a straight uh, dub using Toho's international dub. And from there, they would produce uh, several more films over the next couple of years, all in the uh, Shinrei series, and um, to the point that in 2000 let's see, let me count here, 2004, I believe, uh, they released Godzilla Final Wars, and it was the 50th anniversary of the King of the Monsters, and they were going to go out with a bang. And uh, It was a big blowout movie featuring lots of different monsters, lots of fighting. It's kind of an oddball movie when you consider it, but uh, yeah, it was a big hit, and it's a very popular film. and uh, It closed the curtain on Godzilla for the time being, Um, Toho's official stance is that the King of Monsters is dead, and he may come back at some point, but right now there's nothing on the plate. And uh, that was it. That's the the lexicon of of the King of the Monsters. Um, We are getting uh, some other giant monster movies from Asia nowadays. We got a Korean film called The Host, which was very nice. Uh, But, you know, the thing is that Godzilla's always been kind of the driving factor behind these, and without new Godzilla films to come out, there's not a whole lot of push for other people to try and take that place. I'm not sure if that uh follows or not. The main uh giant monster film to be released since then is the American film by JJ J. Abrams Cloverfield. And Cloverfield is kind of, you know, it it's it to me it it stinks of oh we're going to show those uh we're going to show those kaiju fanboys how a real kaiju movie is made. And to me it misses the point. <laughs> it really misses the point uh nobody goes to uh watch a daikaiju movie to watch a bunch of people shot on puka vision uh, excuse me uh, shot on camcorder so i did not care for cloverfield and um you know frankly not only i mean people i, I remember reading when cloverfield came out that oh this was this was an american uh uh apology for the amerigoji it's like look Godzilla 98 has a lot of problems, don't get me wrong, but Cloverfield is not the answer, okay? Furthermore, Zilla would kick the Cloverfield monster's ass nine ways to Sunday, okay? And I challenge anybody to to be contrary on that because, you know, say what you want about Zilla. He may not have been Godzilla, but he's a pretty tough-ass monster compared to that Cloverfield uh, junk, so. But... That's kind of a primer on uh, Giant Monsters and on Daikaiju Cinema. And from there, you know, we're going to spin this into uh, different uh, avenues. I want to talk about, obviously, films. I want to talk about as many of them as I can, Um, both the Toho series, the Dai-E series, the one-offs, you know, spin-offs, whatever. Um, Also, I want to talk some about uh, comic books. There's been a lot of different Daikaiju comic books over the years, um, from Marvel's. Godzilla series from the 70s to uh, the Dark Horse uh, release of the Japanese mangas. Uh, Dark Horse also released a Gamma series in the 90s, which was neat because we got to see Hesai versions of some of the old school monsters. Um, you know, there's a new Godzilla series coming out from Boom Studios, either Boom or IDW. It's uh, I always get those two confused. Um, you know, but there's been uh, various comics. I wanted would like to talk about games. Oh my gosh, there's been besides the uh, old school games. There's been, um, ever since, uh, on the, I think it was on the GameCube, they released, Atari released Godzilla Destroy All Monsters Melee, and from there, that's kind of opened the floodgates a little bit for giant monster video games. I think, uh, you know, it, it's one of those head smack moments. It's like, oh, my God, we can make a video game out of this, and uh, that they have done. Uh, but also want to talk about, you know, um, pen, pencil and paper and dice games. Uh, it's a great, great kaiju game from uh, Privateer Press, who are the folks who do War Machine and Hordes and games of that nature? But well, the game is called Monster Apocalypse, and uh, this is a great game for just city-wide daikaiju destruction. Uh, and I'd like to talk about that game as well because that game's a lot of fun. And you know, we'll go into there toys. There's lots of there's lots and lots of daikaiju merchandise out there, especially coming out of Japan. If you want to blow money on daikaiju toys, you can do it, and you can do it rather easily. So, um. You know, just about any direction we want to go. And, of course, I want feedback from you guys. If there's something you want to hear about, a specific movie you want to talk about, a specific comic, show, toy, whatever, just send me an email, and we'll hook it up. And uh, we'll get it going on here. And uh, I think now's a good time. We're going to take a little bit of a break. And we'll come back, and we'll close out the show. and, And we will go from there. We'll be right back. Godzilla has turned the heart of Tokyo into a sea of fire. All right. Welcome back to Earth Destruction Directive. Going to close up the show now. First off, uh, I want to talk about what we're going to be discussing on the next episode. Uh, I think for the next episode, I was toying with talking about The Return of Godzilla, just because um, you know we talked about it a little bit on this episode. and I've only recently come into possession of a Japanese copy of the film, and I, I really want to watch that. But uh, two things. First off, It's going to be hard to squeeze that one in, uh, just from the length and the fact that it's uh, subtitled, so I can't exactly uh, do something else while I'm watching it. And, you know, my wife, she doesn't like Godzilla, and she really doesn't like subtitles. So, that's kind of a twofer, uh, double whammy there. So, I instead decided we're going to talk about one of my absolute favorite uh, Daikaiju movies, one I have watched dozens and dozens of times since I was a kid. And when it is commercially available, which uh, I would also like to say that The Return of Godzilla, both in its Japanese and American format, is not readily available in this country. But the film we're going to be watching instead is 1964's Ghidorah, the Three-Headed Monster, uh, which features the king of the monster, Godzilla's, Rodan, the flying monster, everybody's favorite benevolent deity, Mothra, and the three-headed monster himself, the king of terror, King Ghidorah, in its first appearance. Uh, This is a film that, as I said earlier in the show, I had on tape, along with three other classics that I just watched the ever-loving heck out of as a kid, and uh, I could probably do a review of this movie off the cuff without even watching it again, but uh, it's just a classic that I've always liked. It really um, captures a lot of the energy and the general vibe of the films that Toho was producing at this time. Uh, It's just really a a fun little movie, and it's also a great movie as your first uh, Godzilla movie if you're a kid. I tell you what, because it's colorful and fun and fast-moving, and the human plot is not silly and uh, all that other good stuff. So uh, the next time we'll be talking about Ghidorah, the Three-Headed Monster, which is available on DVD from Classic Media if you want to check that out. And, you know, you can send your comments in before the show if you'd like. Now you're saying, Luke, where do I send comments to? Well, you can email us at Directive at yahoo.com. Uh, if you want to check out the blog that I'm going to be posting for us, you can check us out at earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com. And, of course, the home for Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet is earthdestructiondirective.podomatic.com. So, uh, I implore you to send your feedback, comments, questions... Complaints and angry missives to me on the email, and I will be certainly glad to respond to them on the show. Uh, I don't have a voicemail line, but if you want to send a audio recording of yourself leaving a simulated voicemail, uh, you can email that along, and I will play that on the show. Uh, you know, I'm willing to uh, willing to go that extra step for you folks to cover the fact that I am too cheap to set up a voicemail line so that you can talk to me. Uh, but be that as it may. Uh, This is the first episode of Earth Destruction Directive. Here's to many more. Join us next time when we'll be talking about Gidor, the three-headed monster. Have a good one, everybody. than I ever thought possible.